Language. There's your fucking warning. Let's start. Thank you so much to everybody who came yeah. to Queer Camp Out. It was the shit. We had so much fun. Cheetah, wasn't Queer Camp Out the shit? What? Wasn't it the shit? It was the motherfucking That was Cheetah, Daniels Kennedy, a.k.a. my drag mother, letting you know how much fun Queer Camp Out was. And it totally was. How are you guys doing, first of all? Oh my god, it's been like 20-something days and I always feel like, I don't know, I've never gone to like Catholic church and confessed my bullshit to a priest. A, because they couldn't handle it, but also B, I just never really rode with religion like that. But every time I start an episode and I'm like, it's been X days since my last episode, I feel like you guys are my priest. And, um, you know, thank you for that. Hope you guys have been doing good. It's been such a long time. I have told you in the past, whenever I say next week, just take it as next time that I upload something because there is really no guarantee on how my life is gonna be. The last episode, I told you guys I was getting ready for Queer Camp Out. As you could hear from Mother Cheetah herself, it was a goddamn blast. It was a queer variety show. It had stand-up, interpretive storytelling via la danse. My drag mother, Cheetah, my drag sisters, Tequila Rose and Tasha Fierce Kennedy, also fucked it the fuck up. Big thanks to Queer Theater Texas for inviting us all to that. It was super duper fun. It was really interesting because most of the crowd was theater kids, and so I was not really knowing how this whole thing was going to go. But, bitch, if you ever in your life doubt what the theater kids will bring out in a dance competition, go fuck yourself because they will fuck you up. <laughs> it was amazing. Big shout out to Chris. That motherfucker killed it. During Queer Camp Out, I was dressed up as my Orville Peck fantasy that I wore to Louisiana Purchase's opening at the Orville Peck concert. Speaking of, um, yeah, those two, Louisiana Purchase and Orville Peck, if you're not familiar with Orville Peck, He's this masked country and western singer. He's been on the cover of British GQ, and he released a music video featuring Louisiana Purchase. 
So if you haven't seen the goddamn music video, I don't know who you are, what you're doing, or what the fuck your plans are today, but seeing that music video should be one of them. Because Orville Peck's music videos, first of all, his music is the shit. It's kind of like male Lana Del Rey vibes, but also like Turn to Hate is one of my favorite songs. But yeah, Louisiana Purchase is in the music video Queen of the Rodeo, which just got released a couple of days ago by Orville Peck. So please check that out for the love of God. For my queer camp outlook, I went as Orville Peck, basically and uh, performed a good old song called Take You to the Bronx. Tasha opened up with 21, and both of those songs are super duper hilarious, and you can jam to them. I'm working on some playlists to share with you guys, just so that way you can kind of know the dancey, wild shit that I get down to. During Queer Campout, I finally got my camera lens back, and the very first picture that I took on the new lens was of Tasha looking fierce. Kennedy.mp4 slash fuck it up. You can see that picture in the show notes on the website. I told you guys last time in that interview with Louisiana Purchase, Greg J. Gray has pictures. I am giving you a multimedia experience with this shit. So don't you dare sleep on the website. With Queer Camp Out, my best friend Jacob came through from Houston, the same dude that I mentioned before who helped um, take photos for the photo cover of episode two. It was so sweet and fun hanging out with him. While he was down, we actually went to Planet Fitness and I got to watch him experience the Hydra massage for the first time. And let me tell you, I saw his hymen burst and it was beautiful. My only regret is that I wish we had the Planet Fitness staff there so that way they could clap after he climaxed. He even got a membership. So Planet Fitness, I don't know what you're doing. You owe me money. I don't know how much. Uh, give me an email or hit me up on Twitter. I'll send an invoice to you. Jacob, if you're listening to this, I love the fuck out of you. He introduced me into coffee beer, which any other day of the week, I would have 100% told you that sounded like some gentrification in a can. And maybe it still is, but it does fucking go off. So shout out to Coffee Beer. Another thing that happened was the very next day after voguing my ass off and staying up all night like a bunch of hoodlums was the Magical Realness Ball hosted by Ashwell Clinic. It's an LGBTQ sexual health and wellness clinic. They have a location in Austin and they just recently opened another location here in San Marcos. Shout out to you guys, Ashwell. Um, I may have something that comes up with them in the future, so I'll let you guys know. Back to Magical Realness. It was basically like a drag tournament of what I would consider to be like some of the biggest superstars that we have in Austin drag right now. It had Belladonna, Y2K, who we fucking know I stand the shit out of. Y2K, love you! Love you! Um, Noodles, who I also fucking love. Purple Matter, 
and Andy Flores, they all did a really fucking great job. I mean, Belladonna from the get-go was like a firecracker that just showed up on stage, blew up, and then reassembled itself, and then said, all right, later, bye. I mean, she was beautiful, her dress was great as well, and that performance, like, I fucking dare anyone. (laughs) Afterwards, the other contestants, I'm just gonna throw out some other honorable moments from that night. Y2K literally felt like I was getting transported into a different kind of world. The lights and everything were so fucking cool. She was the flying purple people leader. And Noodles came out as the Easter Bunny, which I don't think anybody was expecting. I call Noodles Nudes, because N-O-O-D-Z, why not? But also mentally, I refer to Noodles as like the queen of gigs. If you've never seen Noodles or heard of her, I think Louisiana Purchase mentioned her in that last episode. So you can at least see some pictures of her, um from that episode on the website. Noodles is fucking gorgeous. Always serves a great look. She can dance. I mean, she totally incorporates the kind of characters that she does. I love the fuck out of Noodles. And Noodles, if you're listening to this, holla. Purple Matter is also super duper badass. He DJs at Pink Star and Y2K's events sometimes. He was dressed up as a crawfish and like there was a kiddie pool I'm telling you, this is the kind of shit that, like, only Austin gays can fucking (laughs) come up with and bring. (laughs) He was a crawfish in a swimming pool, and I'm pretty sure there was a Prince song playing. So, your fave could never. (laughs) Andy Flores, too, was dressed up as, like, Mickey Mouse and did some kind of remix integration with that 80s song, Mickey. So it was, like... Oh, Mickey, you're so fun. You're so fun. You blow my mind. Mickey! It was fucking... <laughs> yeah, a lot of people were living. I was I was definitely living the entire night. Eventually, Belladonna took the crown, which was pretty fucking insane, considering that she was the first competitor to go. It was kind of like, immediately after her performance, it just kind of threw down the gauntlet and was like, okay, bitches, match this energy. And, like, homegirl pulled it through all the way to the end, so congratulations to her. We're actually going to have a video of her full performance on the website, so that way you can see what I'm talking about. That shit is, like, almost terrifying, to be honest, because that bitch goes hard. Before all of the performance tournament stuff went down, There was actually a mini ball, and it was hosted by Mother Lepore, who we've mentioned before on the show. I walked for a leather daddy category that I had no business walking in. I was wearing, like, a pink leather jacket. My look that night was a pink rave cowboy. I'll see if I have any pictures of that. I don't think that I do, actually. As I was walking for this mini ball... Uh, I went into the leather daddy category, obviously did not make it through on that one, but that was totally okay, because everybody else who was in that category was way more prepared for it than I was. I was just like, I'm wearing pink, and it's leather, so I'm gonna go out here and just be a jackass, 
And the next category that I did was voguing. And that shit was so much fun. Oh my god. I was getting my fucking life. I can't even tell you what was up with me that night, especially considering that I got done with Queer Camp Out the day before. I just still had so much energy, and the crowd at Magical Realness was super duper sweet. It was almost kind of like, I don't know what to call them. It was almost like the healing crystal gaze, like <laughs> like some hippies, but um, like alternative queers too. I don't know. If you were there at Magical Realness, though, shout out, because the energy there was just fucking beautiful. It, like, warms my heart to even think about. Um, I did get disqualified, though, <laughs> for the voguing portion, and we'll get into all of that later. Another thing that I went to, I'm really just going through the fucking events here, because my schedule has been in sane since that last episode. I went to Cyber Queen. I went to two Cyber Queens since then. They were both badass as fuck. This episode, the cover is actually from Cyber Queen. A really awesome photographer, Javi, took pictures. And so did Elio Winter. If you do not know who Elio Winter is, that is my baby boy. He is a wonderful photographer. The bitch can pull some looks, too. Shout out to Elio. Love you very much. So, Cyber Queen was badass. And even more recently, the one of the biggest things that has been encompassing my life lately has been Bernie Sanders. Pundits, tell us! <laughs> the man is a fucking inspiration. What can I say? I went to his rally in San Antonio because a local city councilwoman from San Marcos was actually speaking. Her name is Hoka Marquez. She's part of Our Revolution, which is Bernie Sanders's grassroots organization for progressive people to run on similar platforms and also just to organize and try to create some progressive policies and establish platforms for those things to come to the forefront of our politics. So Hoka was speaking and she really did the damn thing. So my name is Dr. Hoka Marquez. I'm elected in San Marcos, Texas. co-chair in Texas for the Bernie Sanders campaign. So I've been invited to talk about systems of oppression. And I talk about this, I talk about this because those systems continue to inform a lot of what we do. I'm elected in San Marcos, and in San Marcos, we had 20,000 members of the Klan march down the streets in the 1920s. And those ideologies of white supremacy continue to inform a lot of the policies that we have in place. They continue to inform our education system, our criminal justice system, and our health care system. And those macro ideologies continue to affect me at the very micro level. So I'm elected. I have a master's degree in chemistry. I have a PhD. 
In spite of that, I still don't have access to health insurance. My daughter who's sitting right there, my Sophie, my nine-year-old, is part of the 630,000 children in Texas who are uninsured. And that's double the national average. These systems have to change. And we know that these systems in Texas continue to affect black and brown children on a daily basis. So how do we undo systems of oppression? Senator Sanders always talks about the political revolution, but what is the political revolution? Us. Us undoing those systems of oppression. Dismantling and undoing systems of oppression. Speak on it, sis. I also have to take a $39,000 pay cut. And I mention this because I took that pay cut to serve my people, and I have no regrets. don't have health insurance. I myself am behind five payments in my mortgage. And I, I say this, not because I'm ashamed, but because it's the reality of a lot of people in this country. I'm behind seven payments in my student loans, and it shouldn't be the normal in this country. It should not be the normal in this country. That was just one of the many gags of the night in San Antonio. The night of that rally was also the night of the Nevada caucus. And so we were sitting there listening to speakers and one dude who was like really, really, really doing an amazing job. He was an actor. From HBO's Insecure, Kendrick Sampson. We must love and support one another. We must love and support one another. We 
we have nothing to lose but our chain. Now hold each other's hand high. Hold them high. Hold them high. And remember that all of our liberation is linked together. All of our liberation is linked together. Think about the people you're fighting for. And say it with me from your gut. Say, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. point during his speech there were some screens going like playing CNN and playing the news to show the results as they were coming in and as soon as it showed Bernie winning Nevada the whole place lit the fuck up and it was beautiful And like 30 minutes later, we got to hear Bernie Sanders give his victory speech. And to be honest with you, I don't think it was until Nevada that this campaign has really picked up the momentum that we're starting to see and recognize now. I'm going to play a couple of clips here. I'll try to make them as short or whatever as they need to be, but... I'm going to play some different clips of my favorite pieces of Bernie Sanders' speech. We should not have a nation with more income and wealth inequality than almost any other country on earth. Today we stand firm and we say it is not acceptable that three people own more wealth than the bottom half of American society. because we have an agenda that says to the corporate elite, that says to the 1%, that this country belongs to all of us, not a handful of billionaires. I am tired of seeing workers in Texas and all over this country work for starvation wages. Can't raise a family on 10 bucks an hour or 12 bucks an hour. Right. And that is why we're going to raise that federal minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. In Texas, in Vermont, and all across this country, we got millions of people working two or three jobs to put food on the table. We got moms who cannot afford childcare. We got kids who go to bed hungry. This is America. We will provide a good quality life for all of our people. Brothers and sisters, this is the most consequential election 
in the modern history of this country. I am a U.S. Senator and I got a big ego and I appreciate Bernie. But it ain't Bernie, it is us. government and a nation in which we understand that the problems of your family are my family's problems, and my family's problems are your family's problems, that we are in it together. And we also understand, and Greg and Marianne talked about this a moment ago, we understand that real change never takes place from the top on down, always from the bottom on up. Nelson Mandela said something very profound. He said, everything seems impossible until it happens. Well, we're gonna make it happen. We are going to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. We're going to make sure that all of our people have good quality education without going deeply into debt. We are going to guarantee health care to all as a human right. We are going to see this great country lead the world in tackling climate change. Now, you know, as a United States Senator, I deal with the corporate elite all of the time. And I would be lying to you if I did not tell you that Wall Street and the drug companies and the insurance companies and the fossil fuel industry and the military industrial complex and the prison industrial complex, these are powerful people. They have endless amounts of money. They own the media, they control our economy. They have enormous influence over the political process in America. That's the truth. But at the end of the day, the 1% is 1%. And if we do not allow Trump and his friends to divide us up, because of the color of our skin or where we were born or our sexual orientation or our religion. If we are prepared to stand together, keep our eyes on the prize, create an agenda that works for all of us, not just the few. If we are prepared to do that, we will win the nomination, we will defeat Trump, we will transform this country. I know a lot of people, it's like, oh, why do you have to get into politics or whatever? Because this is shit that matters, and I'm sorry, but whenever I made this podcast, I made it specifically to talk about the best and worst things in life. I consider Bernie Sanders to be one of the better things, because he directly fights against the worst things in life. If you haven't voted yet, please go vote, for the love of God. I don't think a lot of people understand 
the bipartisan support that Bernie has, not just in terms of like passing a shit ton of bills in the past with Republican members of Congress and Democratic members of Congress, but really a lot of his ideas are based in providing and promoting the interest of the working and lower class. So if you're listening to this and you're on the fence about Bernie, look up some videos. He's one of the most consistent people in Congress, period. And it's pretty fucking cool. So in San Antonio, not only did I get to see Hoka speak and Bernie give his Nevada victory speech, the same night as the San Antonio rally was Cyber Babes in Austin. So naturally, I drove from San Marcos to San Antonio to catch the rally, and then I came back to San Marcos for a little bit, and then went to Austin for Cyber Babes, and realized that I got a lot of audio from other people and other things at the San Antonio rally, but I didn't get any audio of Bernie's speech. So that pissed me off at first, and then I thought about it more, and I was like, well, fuck it. Like, I'll just go to the Austin rally tomorrow. I'll just drive back or something. And while I was out for Cyber Babes, I ran into one of my good friends from high school, Kevin, and Kevin's a flight attendant, so he can fly wherever the fuck he wants, like how I used to be able to. And he had a hotel room that he wasn't going to be using because he planned on leaving that morning. So I got to stay at a hotel and like chill in Austin. I didn't have to go back to San Marcos and come back to catch the Austin rally. And while I was at the Austin rally, I met a bunch of really beautiful people. I even met some beautiful folks in San Antonio. Uh, real quick, I just want to play this clip from San Antonio of me interviewing this little family that was behind me on why they liked Bernie Sanders and how they got into him. So... Let's play that. <laughs> so, uh, what's your name? Scott. Scott, nice to meet you. Great, great. So, is this your first Bernie rally? This is my first uh, rally. Ever? Ever. I just had to come out for Bernie, though. And uh, why, why do you like Bernie? Because he's common man. He's, he's average Joe. He knows what we need. And uh, what's your favorite piece of policy of his? Health care for everyone. Veterans for Bernie. Disabled veterans. What service did you do? Uh, both Army and Air Force. Awesome. Did, uh, eight in the Army, 12 in the Air Force. Were you ever like on tour anywhere? Uh, I went to Korea. Okay. So, uh, but never had to go to combat. So when did you get into Bernie? 2016. So before 2016, um, have you heard of him? Or no, like my, my daughter turned me on to him. Yes. Really? No, this is your daughter? Pleased to meet you. I mean, we both are Gregory. My wife, my little daughter. Yeah. Nice Shirley, to meet you. Amanda, Samantha. Your what, what's your name? Uh, Samantha Smothers, pleased to meet you. Gregory. That delicious vampire yeah, she, she turned me on to him. Awesome. So how did you get your dad into Bernie? bringing up some basic human rights sort of stuff. You know, it's like, if, when you sweep aside all the politics, it's about humanitarianism. You know, it's about 
worrying about everybody's well-being, caring for your neighbor, you know, making sure everybody's taking care of that kind of stuff. And Bernie's been saying this stuff since the 60s, you know, so for him it's nothing new. I mean, he's been pretty well on this forever, so. The 60s. Yeah. <laughs> and arrested for it, too. And arrested for it, too. So. <laughs> Uh, is there like a specific video or a specific thing that oh, you remember yeah. seeing? Okay, yeah. No, it was um, in 80 seconds, you will be voting for Bernie Sanders after watching this video. I think it was BuzzFeed. I don't know if it was. But it was definitely, you know, the first article was why millennials need Bernie Sanders. And this was back in 2012, I think. Um, and then there was the 80 second, I assume, BuzzFeed video. In 80 seconds, you'll be voting for Bernie Sanders. Send it to them. <laughs> you know, they watched it. And how that yeah. And so, as soon as you guys saw that video, y'all were like, okay? Yeah, he makes sense. Yeah. So, um, I asked your dad what his favorite piece of legislation or policy proposal was, and he said healthcare. Is yours healthcare too, or what's yours? Uh, I was going to say, nationally speaking, yes. The biggest one is healthcare because people get sick and we need to take care of people. Um, minimum wage. Yeah, that too. I was going to say, but globally, the biggest one is. Uh, the climate change you know i was saying to another reporter that uh, we're a community of common faith you know the house is on fire and people want to say oh you're crazy for saying the house is on fire you know see that's what i'm talking about whenever i say that he's a candidate that can pull in people from different demographics and different interests it's really amazing to see that the not me us slogan that the campaign uses is actually something that sticks with a lot of people and resonates. So, at the Austin rally, I got to witness another really freaking cool moment, which was Marianne Williamson, who was also running for president this year. She dropped out and endorsed Andrew Yang, and Andrew Yang dropped out. Marianne Williamson came through as a complete surprise to everybody and endorsed Bernie. And her speech was so inspirational. We're going to play that here right now as well. state of Texas, as was my mother. And I am someone, there are millions of us, who have always looked to Jim Hightower as a model for how to do it right. When I was a little girl growing up in Houston, I used to put my hand in front of my heart, like millions of others. And I took a pledge, a pledge of allegiance. It was to a flag and for the principles on which it stands, liberty and justice for all. Yeah! Now, some, people, some people don't really understand the point of saying something like the Pledge of Allegiance anymore, but I know there was a point for me. The fact that when I was a little girl, all those years at Mark Twain Elementary School, the fact that as a little girl, I put my hand in front of my heart and I pledged allegiance to liberty and justice for all turned me into a woman who gets really pissed when I see it not happening. And I'll tell you what else I learned in those public schools in Houston, Texas, I learned my history. 
I learned that there were other generations just like this one for whom it was time to take a stand. The abolitionists saw liberty and justice not happening, and they stood. And the women suffragettes saw liberty and justice not happening, and they stood. And the civil rights workers saw liberty and justice not happening. And it was the people in those cases, not the governments, not the elites, not the status quo, it was the people who rose up and the people who woke up and the people who stepped in. And now it is our turn. And of course, we're being told, oh, it can't happen. He can't beat Trump. Bernie can't beat Trump. It can't happen. Well, what do you think they told the abolitionists? They said to the abolitionists, abolishing slavery is impossible. It can't happen. And they said to the women suffragettes, oh, it's not possible, it can't happen. And they said to the civil rights workers, it's not possible, it can't happen. Look at all the forces arrayed behind slavery, behind the suppression of women, behind institutionalized white supremacy and segregation. And did the abolitionists and the women suffragettes and the civil rights workers say, oh, okay. we're going to make it happen. I'll tell you what's already happened to those who say it cannot happen. You just tell them this. It already happened. He won Iowa. He won New Hampshire. Bernie Sanders has taken a stand. And Bernie Sanders has been taking a stand for a very long time. He has been consistent. He has been convicted. He has been committed. And now it's time. I'm here and you're here because it's time for us to take a stand with Bernie. Not me, us. Not me, us. Not me, us. Not me, us. Just as it was the suffragettes' turn, just as it was the civil rights workers' turn, just as it is the turn of those who stand at Standing Rock, just as it is the turn of all those who are standing today. Today, we're not saying to, to, to forces of slavery, we're not saying to forces of suppression of women, we're not saying to forces of segregation, but we are saying to the forces, whatever those corporate aristocratic forces are, that we mitigate against liberty and justice for all, whether it is the prison industrial complex, whether it is the military industrial complex, whether it is the pharmaceutical complex, and whether it is the campaign media industrial complex. And we're here to stand up in honor of our ancestors and in deep devotion to generations who will come after us. We now look back at the abolitionists and we look back at the segregationists, excuse me, we look back at the civil rights workers and we look back at the abolitionists and we go, wow, they did it. They had the fierceness, they had the grit, they had the courage, they had the grace. They stood up for what America can be. And let one day generations look back at us and let us know that we did what those before us have done. And we said in our time to the forces who would say it can't be done, 
this liberty and justice stuff. It's a dream. It's just something you talk about. But when it gets in the way of the financial interests of a few, you can't have that. And we have been trained in America over the last few decades to expect too little, to say pretty please about things that should be the right of every American. Pretty please. We're going to stand up. We're going to show up because we woke up and we're going to say with grace, we're going to say with style, we're going to say to all those who say liberty and justice cannot be done, sure hell can be because we're here. Getting to witness two huge moments of this campaign was like, I don't know, it feels like a fucking movie almost. And I have videos of the campaigns and stuff, so I'm going to try and embed that in the show on the website. So be on the lookout for that. I'm going to restart my YouTube channel. I found the account (laughs) just recently that I used to do the old Grego show on. So I'll have a link to the YouTube as well. I'm not going to put those videos up. If you listen to episode one and, you know, you heard me talk about how I was fucking ridiculous. Good luck, bitch. (laughs) I may release them eventually, but as of now, fuck no. After the San Antonio rally, as I was driving and heading back to San Marcos, I looked out the window and there were a bunch of Trump supporters there. It wasn't that many, but it was like a small handful being kind of loud and obnoxious. I forget. They were playing like really loud country music and they had this giant flag draped over a light and it was like a come and take it flag and like these people that were holding it were literally like hanging on to it with their ass cracks hanging out because the wind was so strong and also the flag was facing the wrong way so like all of the traffic that was flying by that they were trying to troll of people that were leaving the rally the words were the wrong way so you know that seems kind of fucking convenient or you know typical And as I was leaving the parking lot, like I said, it was the results of the Nevada caucus. And we did that shit. So I started playing We Are the Champions by Queen out the window and vibing the fuck out. So back to magical realness and my disqualification. During the voguing portion, there was the first round, which was me just voguing by myself to show that I deserve to even move on into a next round. That was fun. Then the next round I competed against this lovely being. I'm not sure what they identified as or what. So I refer to most people as girl. So I was against this beautiful specimen and she was fucking gorgeous. She was also really good at voguing too. She had a cowbell on her and um, eventually the judges let me advance to the next round, which was cool. I have some video of that too, so that's going to be on the website. And then separate from that, whenever I moved in into the next round, the round that I got disqualified for, at some point 
during the voking portion, I was like on the ground and I felt my competitor over me and it felt like they were sitting on me. And so I'm in the middle of like voguing and dancing my ass off and stuff and like voguing can get very, very catty very quickly and very easily. And also part of it can be like shading your opponent in whatever way that you can. But whenever I felt like someone was sitting on me, I was just like, okay, this is fucking disrespectful as fuck. So at some point in the middle of me being under them, they were over me. It was like they were squatting over me, but I still felt them touch me. So I like moved from underneath their feet and as I got up, they were like, I guess they misstepped or something and uh, like fell off the stage. But what I perceived of it all was I got up after getting sit on and I saw that she fell off the stage and I like went up to her and basically tapped her like, bitch, that's what you, that's what you get. <laughs> and, um, that touching is worthy of a disqualification in the ballroom scene. And also there was a moment where after she fell and I touched her, uh, Miss Mother Lepore, girl six, asked for the music to be cut and then let me know that I was disqualified for touching. And you can only imagine, like, the type of on-the-spotness that that brought. Like, it was very kind of, like, on-the-spot. And I was having fun dancing and everything, so it just kind of felt like a mood killer. But one of the things that really fucked with me was, like, this girl just fell off the stage, and then I touched her and I got disqualified. So that kind of made it seem, in my opinion, like I was getting accused of pushing her. Or like, if the disqualification was for pushing her off the stage. And to be honest, in all of that, like, ferocity and moving around and shit, I didn't, I couldn't even know off the top of my head if I pushed her. And that's what got me disqualified. So I immediately apologized to Breezy, who was my competitor. And again, I felt like she kind of gave me a, a look. Maybe it was like a lethargic look, like, I don't even care. I don't know you, whatever. But to me, it felt like, yeah, bitch, like you pushed me and now you're disqualified. Go fuck yourself. So in the moment of like immediately being disqualified part of me just felt like really embarrassed and kind of like ashamed because I felt like I fucking pushed her and I didn't know if I had or not that was the worst part about it all was like I didn't know if I'd pushed her or if it was the touch and then I started thinking about it and I was like well the bitch sat on me so like <laughs> even if I did touch her you know big fucking deal but Honestly, at the end of it all, it doesn't matter. In voguing, you're not supposed to touch the other person, like, with your hands. You're not supposed to ever put your hands on another person. And 
voguing rules are weird like that. Like, yes, you can hover over someone and, you know, if you accidentally touch them like that, that's one thing. And ultimately, that's what I think happened. I don't think she purposely sat on me to shade me or anything like that. But as I was saying before, in the immediate seconds following the disqualification, there was kind of a moment of huge anxiety for me where I felt like I'd been accused of pushing this girl and I felt like I didn't push her. But in that moment, it just kept on repeating in my head, like, people are going to think you pushed her. You pushed her. You pushed her. It kept on repeating like that. And it was really hard to snap myself out of it. And afterwards, after all of it, I looked at the clip and in the clip you can see she fell uh, before I even touched her. And honestly, like, she was fucking doing awesome. I thought I was doing good. Bitch, no. She fucking, <laughs> she was slaying it. So even if I didn't touch her, she probably would have fucking whooped my ass. What was even cooler, too, was after she fell, she, like, did a flip almost into a dip, like a roll. She, like, rolled into a flip on the stage, and it looked gorgeous. Like, people were fucking living. I was living when I looked at the video. So, ultimately, whether or not I touched her doesn't matter to me. And there was part of me that was really worried about if the disqualification might have been because she was part of Mother Lepore's drag house. But that ultimately doesn't mean shit to me either. Like, I don't think that's what happened. I talked to Mother Lepore before this episode because I know that I'm going to be kind of bringing up some old shit here and I didn't want her to think that I'm, like, coming at her sideways or if she hears it from someone else. I don't, I really don't like for people to take my shit out of context. So whenever I first met Girl 6, it was at a ball that I hosted in San Marcos. And as I mentioned before, the balls that I threw are not, like, the authentic, quote-unquote, ballroom experience. It's more of, like, a production. It's basically like Pose. We were doing those shows before Pose came out, but after Pose came, it was like, oh shit, like, yeah, it's almost kind of like the same format. I always went to get judges who I knew would be impartial to whoever the contestants are. I would go and get a judge from San Antonio and a judge from Austin, and maybe they don't know how to judge balls all the way, but I would at least try and give them a rubric or a kind of like grading thing to go off of. And one of the first instances that I met Miss Girl 6 Lepore was she was competing in one of my house battle balls. And during house battles, it was like different drag cliques in San Marcos were battling against each other. And then the House of Plastic, which is what the House of Lepore used to be, competed in it. And um, there was a little bit of a situation that happened, which was when Girl 6 came in second to Vanessa Vuitton at the time, or Gemini Tings, Miss Girl 6 asked for the microphone and I gave it to her. And she 
didn't really take it with the most amount of grace, I will say. She asked us uh, what the five elements were, like, on the spot, and this is at an event that I'm hosting in front of everybody who was there throughout the entire evening. And honestly, like, I know what the five elements are. I didn't feel like I needed to prove anything because, again, it was my event and I know about the origins of ballroom culture and voguing is definitely something that I identify with in terms of, like, being one of my main mediums of expression in dance. And so, of course, after that incident, this happened, like, two years ago, of course, after the incidents of me getting disqualified, part of me in the back of my head was also thinking, like, well, is this part of, like, you know, nepotism? Is that what happened? Is it like, oh, you're going against her daughter? But no, <laughs> it's not. Literally, you can't fucking touch people in voguing. And the rules are the rules, bitch. And I talked about this with Miss Lepore as well, too. We have different perceptions of what happened, but while she was competing against Vanessa, Vanessa's style was very, like, elegant and, like, femme queen. Like, really, really... I don't know. It was... It was like a fucking fairy just serving faggotry and like beautiful porcelain faggotry. And to my memory, and I'm pretty sure to Vanessa's memory as well, Girl 6 was like bringing the heat. And there were parts where Vanessa was on stage and Girl 6 was kind of fucking with her and touching her boots or something. And it was, like, really minor, but ultimately, I think that's... I didn't judge the voguing portion. I had different judges from out of town for that. I actually think I had Ruby Knight from Austin and Karma Couture from San Antonio, as well as a local San Marcos community figure, Daddy. I had them as judges. And I think that that difference in style and Girl 6 touching Vanessa is ultimately what made the judges hand it over to Dominic. So in a way, it's kind of like, well, I touched someone and got disqualified. And like, that's that's just how it worked out. And as I mentioned before, I talked to Girl 6 about this and we had different perceptions and understandings of how that ball went all the way back then, but ultimately, the thing that, like, we do agree on is that we have a mutual respect for each other, nepotism didn't play a role in whether or not I got disqualified, and that voguing reigns supreme in expressing the beauty and uniqueness that our queer culture has in this little slice of Texas that we're in. Ultimately, falling into that kind of depressive anxiety spiral got me thinking about what is truth like in the moments where i didn't look at the video and i didn't have confirmation of whether or not i pushed this person i didn't know what the truth was i was wrapped up in the moment and in my perceptions i didn't know whether or not i had done that so 
it really got me thinking, what other situations do we misinterpret by being in the moment and by having our own unique perspective? And how does this end up influencing us in different ways that we don't even know about? So like technology, for example, we all use Facebook, we all use Twitter and all of these other different social media sites. And if it's taught us anything, it's taught us that nobody has the monopoly on truth. And misinformation can hit anybody's preconceived notions and hidden biases. Whether it's through the algorithms that decide whether or not you're even going to see that piece of content, or whether it's through deliberate misinformation campaigns. I've noticed with Twitter specifically, like, a lot of people will literally just get into arguments with you by twisting around your words. And it's like, I never even said that. <laughs> like, more specifically, there was an author on Twitter who was talking about how miserable his relationship was with his parents or something. And... I said something along the lines of like, hey, dude, like, I've been in your position before, and it sucks a lot. I just want you to know that, like, time still goes on. You can never completely count out the chance for things to get better or whatever. Like, things with my parents have been rough in the past, and, like, things are a lot better now. And so... Immediately, he just started responding back with, like, really condescending things that were like, not everyone has a good relationship with their parents and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, dude, I'm literally telling you things used to be shitty with mine and that I hope things get better for yours. And then what really pissed me off was afterwards he started subtweeting, which is whenever you talk shit about someone without tagging them essentially and he was like I don't know why people go out of their way to try and make you feel bad about not having a relationship with your parents my parents were really toxic and that's why I cut them out and again there was a certain point where I told him oh well I'm proud of you for cutting out your parents then if you realize that they were toxic I hope things just get better but no this motherfucker just kept on tweeting about how people are trying to make him feel bad for not having a good relationship with his parents. And it's like, I really respected this person and their writing and stuff. I've never met them in person. But after that, I was just like, dude, go fuck yourself. Like, it's so annoying how because of social media, a lot of people do get sucked into this bubble, and especially on Twitter, I've noticed, where it's like, if someone contributes to the conversation and they're not saying the same exact thing as you, they're saying the opposite, or they're saying something else, or they're personally attacking you. And it's like, dude, that is not what is happening. And it's so sad that people don't even know how to have a fucking conversation about things without internalizing it. And, you know, not to project, but I do have some writer friends. Um, my best friend, Travis, that I mentioned in my first episode, he had a fuck ton of issues. A lot of my writer friends feel like writing is a cathartic process, and it is. <laughs> 
And I think in that particular instance, this dude was really showing his ass, whether he knew it or not, that like, yeah, you need to find a more productive way to get out your insecurities and whatever the fuck it is that you're bottling up because that shit is not the wave. And it kind of goes into what I'm talking about, about truth being a giant, you know, shit show (laughs) in some ways. Truth ends up becoming a difference of opinion in terms of this person's perceptions against yours. And people's perceptions are a form of emotional truth. And so whenever I disagree with somebody, usually one of the first things that I try and do is associate or identify something that is true about what we're arguing about. Like at the end of the day, there are facts to certain arguments. And whether we want to or not, sometimes we have to admit them. And sometimes it's not until after the situation that you look back on it and you're like, okay, well, maybe I didn't respond to this correctly, or maybe I could have said things differently, or maybe I could have brought up a different point that I didn't think of at the time. And just because someone disagrees with you doesn't mean that they're wrong or that you're right. Sometimes it can be a mixture of both, and sometimes the truth lies in the middle. I consider myself a person who, for the most part, doesn't really try to dish out a hot take over every single thing, but I do think that if we take a second to think a little bit more about what our values are, we would probably realize that we have a lot more in common than we think. I don't know, though, because at the same time, I know a shit ton of people who identify as like super duper Christian and love thy neighbor and everything, but they can't support Medicare for all or a universal healthcare system because they think that their money is going to be too heavily impacted by that. Despite the fact that you could literally barely even raise taxes and everybody is going to end up having healthcare treatment for cancer and nobody's going to have to go bankrupt for getting a life or death diagnosis. But yet, you know, people who identify as Christians say, don't fuck with my money. I don't care if your mima is going to die like, or, you know, that your brother is going to end up getting cancer or something. That doesn't make sense to me. So in situations like that, I tried to kind of like ask what what is it then that is really at the heart of your values? Because at least with universal health care, how Bernie's plan is right now, technically your taxes do quote unquote go up. So like, for example, say you're paying $200 right now. Well, under Medicare for all, your taxes might go to like 240 a month. Okay, that's 40 extra dollars, but you're saving money because you're not paying for healthcare costs. All of your shit is covered. So it includes health, dental, eyes, and ears. You could get a fucking root canal and your eyes checked and 
maybe even free stitches if something happened and you already paid for it. Or like if you end up getting a cancer thing, you know, it's already paid for. Your taxes went up $40 a month, but literally you and everyone you know is automatically going to be taken care for. I just, I don't understand. I'm sorry, I, I went into a real rant just then, but that's something that just never has made sense to me about people who identify extremely religiously and tend to virtue signal this whole notion of caring for your fellow man, but then whenever it comes to actually supporting policy that, you know, takes care of people's health. Another thing that I say is like, do you know how much of your money probably gets used to fund war that you don't even know about? Like, I don't know about you, but whenever they take money out of my tax or something, there's not a line that says half a drone or like 125th of a drone from my check. So whether we want to admit it or not, we have already provided a lot of money for war and we've given money to some of the richest corporations in terms of tax breaks. It doesn't make sense to me why all of a sudden, whenever it comes to providing healthcare for people, that we have nothing but excuses to justify letting people die needlessly for a classist system that shouldn't exist. There are so many other developed nations out there that do provide healthcare for all of their people. Just the other day, I shared a clip of John F. Kennedy talking about trying to institute something like that. I'm done. That's all I'm going to say. I'm, I'm, already, I'm already over it. For the love of God, just try and give a shit a little bit more about your fellow people, please. And if you haven't voted, consider voting for Bernie Sanders. Let's, let's take a break. And yet, despite spending twice as much, $11,000 for every man, woman, and child in America, despite all of that, we have 87 million people who are uninsured or underinsured. We have 30,000 people, a conservative estimate, who die every year because they're not insured, they don't get to a doctor on time. And because of the corruption of the pharmaceutical industry and the price fixing, we are paying by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs, in some cases 10 times more for the same drug sold in Canada or Mexico. When you want to hear about the cruelty of this system, understand that about a half a million people every single year go bankrupt because of medically related bills. Can you imagine somebody struggling for their lives, dealing with cancer or heart disease or Alzheimer's, struggling to stay alive and then they got to deal with the financial ruin of their family because they got sick. That is cruel, that is outrageous, and together we're going to end that type of system.
And we are back. I chilled out. I had to take some... I drank a little bit. I'm not even going to fucking lie to you, children. Okay? I drank. I did it. What are you going to do? Um, I had to chill out, man. Just sticking with that message of, you know, the internet possibly fucking with the rest of our lives through algorithms. I went to an award ceremony for one of my professors a couple of days ago, and it was really cool because, like, her whole awards presentation beforehand was about how technology has integrated into curriculum and culture. Her name is Cindy Royal. She is, like, super-duper well-respected within the fields of academia and even like people who work within different types of media industries they usually consult with her about what she notices the trends are in new media so after she finished her presentation there was kind of like an open question thing and one of the things that i asked her was what innovation or platform are you most excited about right now and what was so interesting, and it's really funny that she brings this up, is that she started talking about artificial intelligence, and instead of being excited about it, she sounded more worried. And I found that really interesting because part of the reason why I kind of fall into these existential panics whenever I think about how our perceptions of truth are so fucked up through technology is because I grew up playing this video game series. It's called Metal Gear Solid. It's kind of like an action game. It's like action in sci-fi, but a lot of the central themes of it are like there's this group of artificial intelligence networks that are based off of basically like the Illuminati. <laughs> Over the past 200 years, a kind of consciousness formed layer by layer in the crucible of the White House. It's not unlike the way life started in the oceans four billion years ago. The White House was our primordial soup, a base of evolution. And they basically control almost every aspect of American life inside this universe that Metal Gear Solid functions in. And a big part of the plot of Metal Gear Solid 2 is that you're playing this clone of someone that is trying to basically blow up the artificial intelligence network through a nuclear holocaust. This dude believes that after he launches the nuke and like basically forces humanity to start over again, that although it's going to be super duper tragic, humanity is going to have the chance to like make its own decisions again for once. We'll triumph over the Patriots and liberate us all and we will become the Sons of Liberty! And, um, fuck no. <laughs> you know, that's like super duper crazy. But, um, in this game, your character at one point put a virus in the artificial intelligence network. And as the virus starts to go through the network, the team that you've been communicating with for like almost the entire game end up acting weird and it's revealed that they are part of the artificial intelligence. The biocommunication technology that your character has is linked up to his brain and like 
They can even monitor your heart rate and all kinds of biological metadata. And so basically, they utilized his memories to manipulate him into defeating his father, basically, that he was cloned from, the one who's trying to destroy them. And while this virus is going through them, they kind of go into this existential rant about how humanity can't be trusted to dictate its own societal narratives because they're irresponsible. So I actually want to play a little bit of that in here. And as I've mentioned before, fair use and commentary, whatever, don't fucking sue me. I don't have any money anyways. Here's that clip. Raiden, are you receiving? We're still here. How's that possible? The AI was destroyed. Only GW. Who are you? To begin with, we're not what you'd call human. We are formless. We are the very discipline and morality that Americans invoke so often. How can anyone hope to eliminate us? As long as this nation exists, so will we. Cut the crap! If you're immortal, why would you take away individual freedoms and censor the net? <laughs> Jack, don't be silly. Don't you know that our plans have your interests, not ours, in mind? What? The mapping of the human genome was completed early this century. As a result, the evolutionary log of the human race lay open to us. We started with genetic engineering, and in the end, we succeeded in digitizing life itself. But there are things not covered by genetic information. What do you mean? Human memories, ideas, culture, history. Genes don't contain any record of human history. Is it something that should not be passed on? Should that information be left at the mercy of nature? We've always kept records of our lives. Through words, pictures, symbols, from tablets to books. But not all the information was inherited by later generations. A small percentage of the whole was selected and processed, then passed on. Not unlike genes, really. That's what history is, Jack. But in the current digitized world, trivial information is accumulating every second, preserved in all its triteness, never fading, always accessible. Rumors about petty issues, misinterpretations, slander. All this junk data, preserved in an unfiltered state, growing at an alarming rate. It will only slow down social progress, reduce the rate of evolution. Right. You seem to think that our plan is one of censorship. Are you telling me it's not? You're being silly. What we propose to do is not to control content, but to create context. Create context? The digital society furthers human flaws and selectively rewards development of convenient half-truths. You exercise your right to freedom, and this is the result. All rhetoric to avoid conflict and protect each other from hurt. The untested truths, spun by different interests, continue to churn and accumulate in the sandbox of political correctness and value systems. Everyone withdraws into their own small gated community, afraid of a larger forum. They stay inside their little ponds, leaking whatever truth suits them into the growing cesspool of society at large. The different cardinal truths neither clash nor mesh. No one is invalidated, but nobody is right. Not even natural selection can take place here. The world is being engulfed in truth. And this is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. We're trying to stop that from happening. It's our responsibility as rulers. G. 
just as in genetics, unnecessary information and memory must be filtered out to stimulate the evolution of the species. And you think you're qualified to decide what's necessary and not? Absolutely. Who else could wade through the sea of garbage you people produce, retrieve valuable truths, and even interpret their meaning for later generations? That's what it means to create context. I'll decide for myself what to believe and what to pass on. But is that even your own idea? Yeah, so isn't that like one of the spookiest things you've ever heard? I'm gonna link to the full thing, and if you ever feel like scaring the shit out of yourself, I would recommend maybe doing like four sheets of acid and maybe like a cup or two of mushrooms and get into a sleeping bag, like a heated sleeping bag, and fuck your life up, because I'm pretty sure that'll do it. Like I said, I thought it was just really weird that I asked her what she was most excited about and she talked about artificial intelligence going wild. And one of the more interesting things that she kind of added at the end is that she's really interested in the idea of ethics officers serving on the boards of tech companies. One of the examples that she pointed to more specifically was that if Facebook probably had an ethics officer in its infancy, maybe they would have been more prepared for some of the things that they saw, like Russian interference in the 2016 election. And even in like other countries, Facebook has been utilized to spread disinformation campaigns and even further genocide against Muslims. I'll link to all of that in the episode notes as well, just so that way you guys know that I'm not being full of shit. I, I told you before, I used to be a reporter, so I'm kind of obsessed with learning about these things, and if I have to know it, so do you. Sorry about it. Let's move on to some happier things, okay? How about that? Can we agree to do that <laughs> real quick? Por favor, before I lose my mind. Okay, 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 so I said we're gonna talk about some happier things. Let's go ahead and do that. Now, I am super duper excited for this. We are going to go over the memes of the week. The memes of this week are going to be included on the website. I call it WW Walmart, as in like WWE, but WW Walmart, because it is a video of these dudes. One of them is a rapper or something. I saw this video originally on Twitter, and they are like wrestling each other in the middle of a Walmart. They do it in other public places too. And when I was little, I loved <laughs> growing up around being obsessed with wrestling. So seeing this not only tickled my heart, but it also made me laugh my ass off. As I mentioned before, it's gonna be in the episode posting for this episode. So next we're gonna move on to a TV segment. I watched all of Netflix's TV show Next in Fashion. It's basically like their version of Project Runway. It's hosted by Tan France from Queer Eye and Alexa Chung, who is a contributing editor to British Vogue. I don't really know completely how I felt about Next in Fashion. One of the things that I really did not like about Project Runway that I remembered whenever I was younger 
was the almost sociopathic way that they bullied the competitors on the show with their critiques. She looks like a transvestite flamenco dancer at a funeral. I mean, she just does. This lace in this color, it's like seaweed that has come out of the swamp. Thank you. That's not a compliment. I didn't take it as a compliment. Next in fashion, it seems like it tries to be happier and nicer. And I'm sure compared to Project Runway, it seems that way. But being someone who notices when edits happen in video, I was pretty disappointed with it in a lot of presentational ways. I don't think that they edited Tan France to be the nicest. And there's a lot of times where his criticisms or quips about some of the styles come off either a little insensitive, tone deaf, or not really informed. They don't contribute anything to the discussion of how the outfits work. And that was a little disappointing. But overall, the amount of diversity that the show shows in its cast and the designers. They have designers from like all over the world. My favorite is Charles. All of his stuff looked amazing. It's like some of the most modern fashion that I've ever seen. And compared to Project Runway, again, I was looking at older ones. It seems like next in fashion, all of the colors are beautiful in most of the designers work. I do think that the show does fall victim to some of the same tropes that Project Runway did, like personality favoritism and story arcs and drama and stuff like that. But overall, I think if you do like Project Runway, you'll probably like Next in Fashion. I'm just really, really picky whenever it comes to TV shows and things. So if you end up checking it out and you like it, let me know. I'm going to include some examples of some of my favorite designers and stuff and even a little bit more in-depth review of the TV show in this episode in the notes. Now, my favorite part of the show right here is going to be introducing our song of the week, Motherfuckers. I don't care if you're sitting down somewhere, stand up, keep your headphones in. If you're in your car, turn this shit up. I want to hear bass, move the treble a little bit. I don't know, whatever. This is by one of my favorite sources of inspiration, Vestite, also known as Hentai. This is Vestite slash Hentai with Cheer Captain. I'm 
that's just a peak of that song. It's already the number one most repeated song on my playlist, and it is a melancholy 80s pop bop. It honestly makes me so happy. I almost feel like I can't even start my day without listening to it. A little bit of news about that song and about that artist. She is also releasing an EP. It just dropped today. It's called Modern Phenomenon. Cheer Captain is on it and all of the songs on it have a similar vibe of like 80s synth and sad pop bops. So if you're listening to this after this episode is done, please check her out and show some love. Another couple of announcements about Miss Hentai. She is going to be performing at Bitchcraft tomorrow, which is a show by Bruho. It's also going to have a couple of other things, but just off the top of my head, it's also going to have Matthew, who is a wonderful male pole dancer. The gag. Oh my god. He is so good. Hentai, as I mentioned before, is one of my top inspirations of just general artistry. Hentai started doing drag in San Marcos a couple of years ago and then moved on to win a pageant title in Austin. It was a drag pageant called Drag Survivor where they would find Austin's next drag superstar and she did amazing. I'm telling you, Hentai's style is basically like surrealist, nightmare, daydream, anything of the sort. And I've performed at her birthday. She's performed at my birthday. She's one of the first and only times I've ever even performed in Austin. And a couple of announcements before we wrap this episode up. I'm going to be performing with hentai. I don't know um, what the performance is going to encompass completely, but I do know that it involves me being a backup dancer or something for her in body paint. So not only am I performing with her tomorrow, she is going to be our guest on the next episode. <laughs> It's gonna be a fucking gag. We go over her winning Drag Survivor and then just quitting drag, which was insane. And also what kind of inspired her for Cheer Captain and a couple of other existential conversations here and there. The reason why I brought that up is a lot of people might know you as the drag queen who won Austin's next best drag superstar and then quit. So my immediate follow-up question is, who the fuck do you think you are making <laughs> all of this music? I took away, I took away somebody's opportunity to shine, and now I'm like, see ya. Stay tuned. Like I said, whenever I say next week, just take that as next show, because we don't know how long it's gonna take to edit all of that. <laughs> that pretty much wraps up everything in this episode. Um, a little bit of closing notes. The last episode, whenever I said I was just so happy to get it all done. So I had Queer Camp Out and then I had Magical Realness. I got so sick out of nowhere. I think it was just like 
pure body exhaustion from those two nights going so hard. I was probably out until like five o'clock in the morning both nights. My body straight up gave up. I got sick. It got to the point where like my acne exploded and I was literally exhausted and like dehydrated and shit. I felt like shit for like an entire week. So at the end of that episode was like literally the one day that I had just started feeling better. As you can probably tell, that doesn't mean that I've slowed down at all. I've been really pushing things super hard and I'm trying not to let the show and all of the ideas and stuff that I have end up, um, you know, giving me more anxiety and giving me more pressure and stuff. I just want to keep on continuing having these existential conversations with you guys. So if you don't mind, if you hear this, send me a message or like I said, if you see some of the memes that I share, share them, comment, whatever. Engagement is really what I crave. <laughs> the world is a barreling rock in a void of nothing and the very, very least that I ask for is a little bit of love and affection from the people that I love and the people that inspire me. So if I do that for you, shout a bitch out for the love of Christ, for the love of Gaga. A couple of announcements since we are almost done with this episode. In episode two, I talked about how I was going to give the rest of the donors who contributed to the fundraiser a shout out. Those donors are Heather. Heather is a wonderful writer. I love her so much. Um, she's actually a Facebook friend that I have never met in person. Heather, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for your contribution. It means so much. Oh my god. <sighs> I'm trying not to get like too in my feelings because as soon as I start thinking about how people do give a shit about me, it gets a little overwhelming. Um, Wanja. Wanja also. Oh my god, Wanja. <laughs> Wanja is so fucking cool, you guys. She's so sweet. I haven't talked to her in forever. But Wanja, you look great. You look happy. That's what matters. I hope you continue to be happy as much as possible because you are beautiful and you deserve it. Another person is Elio, who I mentioned earlier. Elio actually took the cover photo for this episode, and it, I, I mean, it, it's fucking beautiful. I love it. I look like I am straight out of a gay Old Navy catalog for club kids, and we stand. Thank you so much, Elio. Those are are the donors. I also have Jacob, my friend who came from Houston and who's been helping me out. He is right now the first and only person who is contributing to the show through Patreon. That's a uh, like monthly thing that you can set. I mentioned the Patreon before. It's basically a way for anybody to contribute to the show who feels like helping me out because 
I don't want to touch any of that fundraising money that is straight up for fundraising, but if I make you laugh, if I make you think, or if I make you even smile a little bit and you wish that you could repay me somehow, you can get on Patreon or you can Venmo me with a, a comment of what it was in the conversation that made you smile, laugh, or think because seeing those messages would make my entire fucking day and probably my entire life because you can't put a price on being an inspiration to the people around you and that's on period um <laughs> that was so creepy <laughs> i just grabbed the microphone and like gurgled period I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Guys, that is pretty much all I had to talk about. As I mentioned before, everything is going to be in the show notes. This episode is so much. I had to write so much. So please check it out. Don't sleep on the website. That is gregjgray.com. Another thing that I wanted to do is if you are digging this episode, please send it to a friend who loves podcasts or who is extremely gay and that you know will love this podcast. Um, right now, I think I'm sitting at like close to a hundred um, listeners per month. That's cool. I'm appreciative of that. But those are rookie numbers. We gotta we gotta boost those numbers. Honestly, I want this podcast to reach as many people as possible. Because I know that, like how I mentioned before, I have hardcore insomnia and there are times where anxiety really can fuck up people's life and really make them feel shitty. So I see this podcast as basically a way for other people who consider themselves to be overthinkers to chill out or to get a little bit engaged with some ideas, anything to kind of drown out the noise. And the more people that this reaches, the more fulfilled I will feel in taking up this project and doing the most that I can. I love you guys so much. Thank you for tuning in. I'm going to try and get that podcast with Hentai done. In the meantime, cheers, stream captain. Check out the website. Send me some love. I hope you're not texting and driving. I hope that you're wiping your ass correctly. I hope that whenever you send the food back, the waiter doesn't spit in it. And that the next time someone puts you on blast, the perfect your mama joke comes to mind and you eviscerate them. Bye-bye. You really think I don't have more to say? Bitch, fuck you. I got sick before I recorded this episode. I got sick when I recorded this episode. That's why it took me so fucking long. This shit was recorded like a month ago. Jesus. I could not fucking move. Fuck Corona, man. She lucky I don't know where she lives. I'd punch her in the face while she's sleeping. 
killing all kinds of people all over the world. And for what? What they do to you? Shit. That's fucking ruthless. Yes, I know that Bernie Sanders is getting his ass whooped right now. Give the man some time. We got some progressive policies we need to fucking push through. The revolution ain't always gonna be easy, baby. But don't don't be flooding my DMs on Twitter talking about Bernie's getting his ass whipped, this, that, and the other. Y'all need to be out there. Do your part. Go out and vote. Shit, Joe Biden can't even speak a fucking sentence straight. So... If you think that we're winning with him, <laughs> girl, I don't know what to tell you. That corona is in your brain. We gonna get some fucking free college for your ass because apparently you need it if you think Joe Biden is gonna do this shit. Mic drop. Yeah. 